0: Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Ocean Governance podcast. As usual, the podcast is brought to you by the Law Department at the School of Business, Economics and Law in Gothenburg. And it is made by myself, David Langley, who is a professor of Ocean Governance Law, and my colleague
1: Aaron Westholm, a doctoral student in public law.
0: Yes, and today we are happy to be joined by our colleague Gabriella Arguello, who is a postdoc here at the law department. And Gabriella will um, present one of today's two research papers, which are both focused on, on uh, different aspects of maritime or marine governance in the Arctic. Gabriella, would you perhaps start by saying something about yourself?
2: Yes, uh, first, uh, thank you for this uh, invitation. I am uh, happy to be here with you. Uh, Well, my background, I hold a doctoral degree in maritime law. I graduated from the University of Gothenburg in 2018. And my thesis basically dealt with the regime interaction between cheap wastes and transboundary movement of wastes, how to address this fragmentary view of environmental law. And my areas of interest, my current postdoc deals with uh, governance in the Arctic marine environment. Uh, With no further ado, I would like to start discussing the first paper. And this paper was uh, published this year by Professor Tanaka. It is entitled Changing Paradigms in the Law of the Sea and the Marine Arctic. The Journal of Marine and Coastal Law published this article in its 35th volume for those that are interested in having a closer look to this paper. Well, in this article I found that the professor Tanaka advances a very well established argument that runs through his literature. This is that the existence of two paradigms in the law of the sea. The first one concerns individual interests of states that are crystallized in the traditional jurisdictional division of the oceans, and the second paradigm is the pursuance of common interests. Those common interests represent shared common international values, according to this author, that are collective and cannot be divided into each individual state's interests. Common interests exist both in areas within and outside national jurisdiction So Professor Tanaka used these paradigms um, uh, as examples to pinpoint them in the marine Arctic. But before giving a general overview of the paper's content, I would like to highlight the article's main structure, the argument and the tone. I would characterize this as a doctrinal legal piece that focuses both on the paradigms' main characteristics and limits, using practical examples from the marine arctic following the current legal framework the central argument is that these two paradigms coexist but at some moments i feel that the statements lead to the reader to believe in the increasing relevance of pursuing community interests and that this community interest paradigm in the future will become the primary governing framework for the law of the sea and beyond However, the concluding paragraph leads let lead, me want a it little, a little bit more. The article concludes with the following question. Is it possible to promote community interests under Paradigm 2 while safeguarding individual states' interests under Paradigm 1? This is the question I hope to have an answer in this article. For those who, who do research in the Law of the Sea, the pursuance of these common interests in a jurisdictional divided ocean is is, the, is one of the main challenges. So I think that professor Tanaka is quite skillful in presenting these paradigms, but community interest, this apparent growing importance, I don't think they are really reflected in the legal sources he's analyzing. I don't know what do you think about this?
0: No, I, I quite agree actually. That was one of the things that struck me that um, th- there is some kind of almost a naivety in a sense to the sort of the, the political dimensions of, of Arctic governance. Maybe that follows from what you say is, is the rather sort of traditional dogmatic approach that he takes to the law, but I would have really appreciated some at least more of a flavor of sort of the, the political science or the, the um, diplomatic perspective on this. It becomes very, very legal internal and, and therefore. can can seem a bit naive in in respect to, well, what is these these power struggles that we see unfolding in the Arctic and how do they affect the actual effects or or the implementation of the legal sources that he is uh, talking about?
2: Yeah, and in fact, this makes me question a little bit this central importance given in the article concerning common interests. In the introduction, for instance, common interests are described as the core defining element not only on the law of the law of the sea, but also of international law. Uh, he argues, for instance, that sharing and protected, protecting common interests are a prerequisite to establishing legal order in the international community. And that it left me wondering whether the actual foundation of international law is the protection of common interests or whether common interests reflect maybe the international laws changing conditions that we are experienced experiencing uh, for instance professor tanaka explains that protecting the marine environment and protecting biological diversity are common interests but then if we see the foundation of, of the of international law and, and the law of the sea common interests were not in the picture uh, the law of the sea as i as as, as, as i see it its origins is is um, um the struggle to gain national dominion over the oceans and its resources while maintaining fundamental freedoms, uh, for instance navigation or fishing. Um, what do you think about this uh, uh, Adam and David?
0: i think that if you keep on a very on a very general level maybe we can say that the law of the sea reflects some underlying common interests of maintaining a peaceful and orderly utilization of ocean space and ocean resources or something Mm -hmm. like that but as soon as we become more specific and engage with particular areas particular resources particular activities then of course it's it's more about Handling the fact that interests are not common at all, that interests are very diverse and oftentimes confrontational, so that we need some kind of structure for those interests to be managed in a way that doesn't result in chaos or war or, well, other states that that at least most countries do not want.
2: Yes, I agree. So moving on, uh, when the author discusses, for instance, paradigm one, that he also calls the law of of divided ocean the article highlights the following principal elements. First, is the spatial distribution of a state jurisdiction. Second, that this spatial distribution is based on distance from the coast. Third, the law of the sea has traditionally been dominated by the principle of freedom and sovereignty. So the former ensures various uses of the sea, while the latter safeguard the coastal state's interests. Finally, the legal framework relies on the principle of reciprocity. So compliance is based on what others are doing. But then the article also describes the main limitations of this current paradigm of the law of the sea. The first one is the limitations of law and nature, where the ecological interactions between marine spaces eh, eh, and species, and the ecological conditions of the physical surroundings are ignored. To properly govern the ocean, according to the author, there is a need to take into account this natural unity. This argument again caught my attention. I think it required maybe a little bit bit more of explanation because this natural unity of the ocean or ecological interactions needs to be sooner or later on subject to social and legal construction. I missed in this discussion an explanation of what this natural unity actually means what ecological conditions are. I am sure that those are not uncontrover- uncontroversial concepts. You that have been working also with ecosystem management, maybe, do you have a, 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 an opinion of the, on this? Uh, I,
1: yeah, I agree with you that they, it's, it wasn't really elaborated on uh, how this sort of... Uh, how, what the consequences would be or for law with this the the fluid or what do you call it the yeah the connectedness of nature but I also thought that it was uh, I had a thought that he he talks about this connectedness of the sea of the oceans uh, and that this does not relate to the maritime boundaries that are drawn and I can certainly agree but I somehow I, I missed that, I missed the connection also to land that he talks about, well, we don't have a regime for uh, governing uh, land-based pollution in ocean or to the ocean. But I thought that we have a lot of regimes governing land-based pollution as such and that these regimes will affect also pollution that comes to the ocean. Do you, do you see what I mean? That uh, It's like he's, only relating law that is actually directed at the oceans but this connectedness means that everything that happens on land will affect the ocean so it doesn't necessarily have to be connected legally to the ocean am i making sense here
2: absolutely i i think that this this matter of complexity of law and to see what will be uh, relevant but as you mentioned yes everything that happens in land uh, has an impact on the ocean. But I guess that because he the, this argument made in this article are so doctrinal, means that we actually do not have this uh, comprehensive legal region dealing with land-based uh, marine pollution. And,
1: yeah.
2: and um, moving on to, to the second limitation that the author finds concerning these paradigms is the principle of sovereignty and freedom that are inadequate to govern common interests. For instance, this creeping jurisdiction into the high seas may not be the solution to avoid natural resources over exploitation. But then again we are going we are seeing that that in the Arctic what is happening now is that all our uh, all Arctic coastal states have already submitted information to to have a, a broader areas under national jurisdiction in the continental shelves and the final limitation concerns the principle of reciprocity in securing compliance with relevant rules so especially those of environmental character so basically he finds a limitation in all of the main elements of this paradigm then the article moves to the marine arctic when he mentions that the paradigm is visible in Maritime limits, maritime delimitation, and state jurisdiction. The article points out how climate change affects, for instance, baselines used to measure maritime zones. And I think this particular issue has attracted much scholarly debate concerning possible alternatives to counteract this uh, problem. Since, uh, from from a legal standpoint, I believe that baselines are ambulatory. There are many that have. Uh, Propose, for instance, a new legal alternative, such as freezing the baselines. Then, uh, according to the author, a particular issue that attracts growing attention in the marine Arctic is the author limits of the continental shelf beyond 200 nautical miles. Canada, Norway, Denmark, Russia have already submitted information on the limits of such extended continental shelf to the Commission on the continental shelf's limits. I found particularly interesting the state practice of these Arctic states. They mutually agreed that they should not object to the other Arctic states' submissions to this commission. I believe that this practice aims to facilitate the future extension of natural jurisdiction into areas beyond national jurisdiction. So these extensive areas of seabed potentially falling under national jurisdiction, uh, will have the fact that the water column will Remain as high seas. And in this point, I see a possibility that Arctic cooperation concerning these common interests will be eroded in the future. Because again, this, this clear cut separation of, 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 of the environment it will have a problem in, 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 in the management. Uh, do you feel that this is a possibility or that is maybe not that problematic?
1: No, I think, I mean, I agree with you that it seems as, I don't believe that the extension of uh, national jurisdiction to the continental shelves will in any way be of benefit for the natural environment. <laughs> I don't believe that the reasons why they extend their jurisdiction is for environmental protection, but rather we see all of this ex exp- exploitive interests in the Arctic that are now, I mean, the possibilities are um, enhanced with climate change and the ice. uh... Yes,
2: I do agree with that. In in my research, for instance, I have seen that the Arctic states have been very reluctant, for instance, to promote area-based management tools in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And I think this is because they are already envisioning this extension of national jurisdiction on the seabed. So this, um, I, I find that this, um, uh, this there is a discourse of environmental protection, but it is not the, the actions uh, tell us uh, tell us something different.
1: Yes, and I think that, well, uh, well I mean, uh, as you and David talked about a bit earlier, uh, this. Uh, the relation between the common interests in law and and politics becomes interesting here again that looking at the article it it doesn't seem to me as the the obstacles for a successful environmental governance lies within law but rather within politics and state action that we could argue that environmental protection is a common interest that we all should strive for but it, it's it it's somewhere else that it's not it's not the legal possibilities but rather the the political will that is the problem here but that's as you said it's quite silent in the article
2: yes but once we have this political will there is always some i think some room an important room for law to to um to fulfill for instance these um, imaginaries of the future that we have
1: absolutely yeah.
2: so the article also explains for instance that although the divisions of the oceans pursues to allocate a state jurisdiction the material scope of a state jurisdiction in each jurisdictional zone is not always clear-cut a case in point for instance in the arctic concerns prescriptive and enforcement jurisdiction in ice cover areas within the exclusive economic zone to prevent ship source marine pollution. In this particular case, uh, the exercise of this jurisdiction may not require the review of the International Maritime Organization, so the author raises some concerns regarding the kind of measures that could be implemented. But moving on to the law of the sea second paradigm, paradigm, also known as the common interests, it's Its principal characteristics are first, that it provides a cooperation framework for marine affairs and Professor Tanaka calls this framework the law of our common ocean. A second characteristic is the prominent role of international institutions. I agree with this point, but I think international institutions such as the IMO play also a fundamental role in paradigm one. So it's not exclusive for this paradigm. Uh, Many of the legislative and enforcement jurisdictions provided currently in the law of the sea are dependent on the norms, the regulation, the standards adopted by international organizations, uh, including the the IMO. So I think, yes, uh, international institutions are important in in common interest, but they are important also in in this traditional division of, of the ocean as well. And the third characteristics is the focus on the unity of the ocean. Again, I wanted to know a little bit more about this unity. How how are we if we if we argue that this is um, that the ocean is a unity because it it refers in the singular? I was thinking this is a massive scale. How are yes. we going to approach complexity? What do you think?
1: I guess this is a. It, it is a challenge for any type of natural resource management about choosing a scale of governance or scale of management. And uh, it's, it's not possible to see the entire connected marine areas as one thing to be governed just because it is connected. Because that will... I mean, it's not feasible to govern it in that sense. No. So it needs to be broken down into some type of manageable pieces, but I guess one argument that you could take from this is that this division of management should be based more on ecological criteria than on the, these delimited national jurisdictions that the, well, based on the law of the sea, the maritime zones.
2: Yes, I agree with you that, yes, complexity needs to be broken down, ecosystems defined, but at some point, sooner or later, we are going to have, in, must take into account these jurisdictional features because they are here to stay, I think, for a long time. So yes. we cannot ignore these uh, jurisdictional aspects of what the article calls paradigm one. They will be important to actually confine and broke down this complexity of the, the ocean unity.
1: Absolutely. And again, I guess uh, it's connected to the politics that even if we would want to, to take away all national jurisdictions, that would be politically unfeasible. So it's a sort of it's a utopia discussion that's maybe not that useful, but rather, how can we take this connectedness of nature into account within the framework that we have currently? It's yes, a yes. more uh, relevant discussion I think
2: Yes and I think that then then maybe interna- international organizations have an important role to play regional and, and international such um, at this point what I also missed a little bit in this paper was an explanation of paradigm the, the limits of paradigm 2 uh, as it was made with paradigm one so that is something I missed but among common interests, the paper includes protecting the marine environment, biological diversity, living resources, and marine scientific research. Again, something here caught my attention, and that is basically this um, clear-cut understanding that biological diversity and legal res- uh, living resources are presented as common interests, but still separate common interests. I guess mm-hmm. the paper wanted to highlight that living resources and biological diversity are currently generally treated legally, as, le- as sep- separate legal categories, but I believe one of the most significant challenges we have in protecting biological diversity is the independent treatment from fisheries, for instance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What do you think
1: about it? It very much relates to... Uh the connectedness of the oceans again that it we try to not only separate them geographically but also separate out different parts of biodiversity and treat them within separate legal frameworks when they are inherently extremely connected it it, it limits the understanding or it limits the legal understanding of nature i think
2: Yes, and I think this maybe could be a little bit more problematized and not presented as something natural, that biological diversity and living resources are something. It appears that in the paper that they are different, separate categories. And um, also, well, why I was thinking, why marine scientific research is, is included as a common interest? I guess, because um, it provides our understanding of human impacts on the ocean and has given actually the law of the sea, this increasing environmental focus and maybe consolidated this notion of common interests. But uh, I don't think that marine scientific research, um, we should be careful about how we frame research also.
1: I really agree with you there. that maybe it's like an idea that marine scientific research is always uh, of environmental benefit. Exactly. Uh, While it's not, it's also often for extractive purposes.
2: Yes, so what is the purpose of the marine scientific research? It's not always something, um, the idea, maybe the general idea, is always posted as something beneficial. But is it always the case? Is it that we should pursue research research in its entirety of what does it mean. I think that this could be also being problematized a little bit Mm -hmm. better. Um, So concerning the marine Arctic, the paper highlights three issues. First, the importance of safety of navigation due to the harsh weather conditions and the marine ecosystem's vulnerability if an accident or an incident does occur. Second, uh, the adoption of the agreement to prevent unregulated high seas fisheries in the ser- se- Central Arctic Ocean uh, in 2018 is, according to the paper, a welcoming development in the light of future fishing opportunities arising from this uh, future melting ocean. Mm. And third, the agreement on enhancing international Arctic scientific cooperation adopted under the auspices of the Arctic Council. Of course, much more needs to be done to protect the Arctic marine environment, it says the author. There is a slow progress concerning land based marine pollution, but as we know this is um, this is the, the case not only as uh, for the marine Arctic, but it's an issue of concern for or the law of the sea in general because most of the pollution um, marine pollution comes still from from land, and I think you are already highlighted this. Um, Uh, this connectivity of what happens with uh, the land affecting the sea. Mm -hmm. There is also this uh, piecemeal approach to marine pollution sources, which again is a significant issue on the law of the sea or the law of the sea in general. The paper calls for strengthening regional cooperation in these critical areas. What type of regional response is not explored in the article? Um, The article then goes to touch about sharing international responsibility, so here becomes a little bit, I think, more legalistic. Uh, He talks about the the burden of proof and the causality to prove environmental harm in areas beyond national jurisdiction, and who has uh, um, the standing, for instance, to, to claim a certain damage in areas beyond national jurisdiction. In general, I think this is a very interesting paper that summarizes, I think, how Professor Tanaka conceives the law of the sea as standing today. The marine Arctic is used to exemplify the current state of the law of the sea, but I will categorize this paper as a very ample and overview of many challenges, rather than an in-depth analysis of a particular gap, a particular problem, or an incident. And with that, I conclude my Short overview of this very interesting paper.
0: Thank you very much, Gabi. That was very, very useful um, points, I think. Um, And I I definitely agree that this is a paper that reveals uh, his sort of profound knowledge of various aspects of the law of the sea. Um, It it draws on wide experience. But as you say, I think also that it would have benefited from engaging perhaps Uh, at some more depth in uh, the institutional perspectives in particular. Mm -hmm. Aron, would you like to uh, present to us today's second paper?
1: Yes, I would. So, uh, this paper that I will present is called The Central Arctic Ocean F- Fisheries Agreement as an Element in the Evolving Arctic Ocean Governance Complex. Uh, it was written by Alexander N. Vulegshanin, Oren R. Young and Paul Arthur Berkman. And it was published in Marine Policy Volume 118 from August this year, that is 2020. Um, So the point of departure uh, of this paper is the increasing attention that has been drawn to the Central Arctic Ocean in the last years. And maybe uh, I should start by explaining that the Central Arctic Ocean is or what it is. um, And the the easiest way to explain it is that it it is the high seas part of the Arctic. That is the part that is not covered by any state's national jurisdiction. There are a few more areas of high seas within the Arctic, uh, but the Central Arctic Ocean is the largest area and also the only one that borders all five Arctic coastal states. And in 2018, the five coastal states together with four states and the European Union uh, signed an agreement to prevent unregulated high seas fisheries in the Arctic. And the paper assesses the significance of this agreement as an element in the evolving governance complex for the Arctic Ocean. Um, it, the paper is divided into five parts uh, that introduces the paper, provides an overview of the legal status of the Central Arctic Ocean within international legal frameworks, and then discusses the negotiation of the Fisheries Agreement and reviews the agreement's most important provisions. And finally, comments on future options for the Arctic Ocean and Arctic Ocean governance more generally. Uh, and I'll try to uh, briefly uh, describe the substantive parts of the paper and then sum up with some thoughts about it. But uh, to begin with, I could say that this, much like the paper you presented, Gabby, is uh, quite, it approaches the problem or the, the issue at hand from a quite purely legal perspective. Um, there, there's not much other considerations, but it's, it's the legal aspects here that are in focus. So the first thing that the author discusses is the legal status of the Central Arctic Ocean according to international law. And here they conclude that although the Arctic coastal states uh, all have sovereign rights within their EEZ and they may also have claims in relation to the continental shelves beyond the 200 nautical mile line, as you said, uh, Mm -hmm. Gabi, the water column is still considered to lie beyond national jurisdiction. And how large this area is has changed over time and may still be subject to change. Uh, in 2001 Norway drew straight baselines around the Svalbard archipelago which extended their EEZ. And again without any objections from the other Arctic states it seems they have a consensus to not challenge each other's claims too much. And uh, this uh, of course made the Central Arctic Ocean high seas uh, a bit smaller. And there is still a possibility for the United States to do the same thing. And uh, it, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> but again, the climate change uh, might also change or um, require changing of the, these uh, limits. And so, the, the, even though the Central Arctic Ocean has a clear meaning within international law, the, the content may change over time. Um, And then the paper goes on to identifying international agreements that are relevant to the governance of this part of the high seas. And there are quite a few and I won't go into them, but perhaps most importantly, the five Arctic states have had uh, or they made a joint declaration called the Illulisat Declaration which concludes that an exen- extensive international legal framework applies to the Arctic Ocean so there is no need to develop a new comprehensive legal framework regime or international legal regime to govern the Arctic Ocean and to, to To finalize this part about the the legal aspects is that the authors discussed the Central Arctic Ocean if it could be considered a semi-enclosed sea and thus if it would fall under the provisions of part nine of the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, This would have some importance regarding the cooperation with third states that do not border the sea. Uh, However, there is no clear conclusions. Other than that, the way in which the Arctic states are acting currently, anyway, would be consistent with the provisions uh, in part nine of the Law of the Sea Conventions. Uh, I don't know I know that you, Gabi, you have thought at least a lot about the legal sort of uh, landscape within the Arctic. Would you consider uh, the, the Central Arctic Ocean to be an enclosed or semi-enclosed sea?
2: I, I would say uh, no because i think that the authors made also a good legal argument concerning that the enclosed seas also have a, a clear uh, limitations for instance about the, the the scale of the sea and that it has to be connected with a narrow passage to a large a larger ocean that i think the arctic ocean that's not uh, fulfilled and i don't think that this has also been claimed by any of the uh, arctic uh, states okay So, um, I don't think that this is uh, actually a viable path for the Arctic, but what are they doing? For instance, we have already an an organization, the Arctic Council, with eight Arctic states uh, promoting cooperation, but then we have this Ilulisa. I am pronouncing that correctly?
0: Um, I don't know. (laughs) I think it's yeah. Ililusat, but I'm not sure. Il-il-usat. Il-il-usat.
2: Okay. Ililusat declaration, where these five coastal states, they said that yes, we have this international legal framework applying to the Arctic. N- nothing special is needed, but and this is an important but we have an stewardship role, so they have an special role to fulfill in in areas beyond national national jurisdiction, but. Yes, so the five coastal states have this special role because they are so surrounding this area of the high seas, which other states have already reacted against. We've seen that a, a couple of years ago, China already say, uh, enacted its Arctic policy, it consider itself a near Arctic state. So many of other states are already claiming that in the high seas, all other states have vested interests in, the, yes. in on equal footing that the Arctic is. so challenging a little bit this perception that the the coastal arctic states have a special standing
1: on this yes, and this uh, seems to have been clear also in the development of the fisheries agreement where uh, i think iceland challenged the first draft of the agreement but and it was then amended before uh, it was adopted in 2018. Yes. Um, but this was actually an interesting aspect. I don't think that uh, the article really brings up all of these issues that you brought up now, but I think they would have been useful for the article to, uh, when discussing sort of the way forward for a governance regime for the Arctic. This uh, is clearly relevant, a relevant intervention.
2: Yes, and now we see also that the European Union is part of this agreement as well. Yes. And they want also to portray themselves as having an Arctic identity. So <laughs> this is a reaction that not only these five Arctic coastal states have an important saying on what will happen in areas beyond national jurisdiction.
0: I must say that I was I was sorry, I was a bit surprised that this this article also has such a sort of strong legal focus. Considering that this two of the three authors are, are not lawyers, they are social scientists or focus on on diplomacy or policy. Yeah. Um, to to the extent that they do engage with legal arguments, I think or legal analysis, which they do extensively, I think it it suffers from a lack of of references to relevant sources. I think I mean there is there's a big debate, for example, in the Legal literature on this the status of ice covered areas and what that actually means and what rights, how to interpret the additional rights given to coastal states in such areas. but I think they they have only one reference to something in that section, and I think overall this paper suffers, to my mind, from from really a lack of references to existing legal uh, discourses around many of these topics. Which yes. gives us a sort of a shallow impression. I'm not saying that their arguments are shallow, but they don't position themselves in the existing legal discourses, which is regrettable when they have a mainly legal way of argumenting.
2: I, yes. am, I totally agree with David. I think that the first thing that's, that that caught my attention when I was reading these that appear very legalistic is that when they introduce these l- l- legal legal. Uh, treaties and conventions that govern the, the Arctic Ocean, I find a disconnection of what we usually call the law of the sea from other uh, regimes. So they, they talk about the Marple Solas and then the, the law of the sea convention and so on. But I think that all of these treaties are what we call the, the law of the sea family. And then we have, of course, the, the Convention of Biological Diversity, and that it shows a lack of positioning, as, as 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 you mentioned, David, in the current literature, because that will have enriched how these uh, other conventions are also understood uh, and constructed.
1: Yes, it's it's more um, that they say which conventions and which provisions are applicable and not, and not not sort of any in-depth analysis of these provisions or legal acts or treaties. Yes. I guess I think we've discussed this sometime uh, in a, a previous episode of the podcast uh, but it, maybe what you started with saying David there that uh, at least two of the three authors aren't uh, uh, clear legal scientists that this is something that commonly happens when non-legal scientists go into law and discusses law that it's it usually well, you miss some of the sort of content, the importance of the contents of law or the legal discussion. Mm. But yeah, so they. But the point is that that they're trying to make is that this new fisheries agreement, which is based on a precautionary precautionary principle, which they say that it, it could be said to more be aimed at preventing the fire rather than extinguishing fires, and. The objective is to prevent unregulated fishing in the high seas portion of the Arctic Ocean through the application of precautionary measures. It doesn't say anything about the possibility to, for future arrangements for regulated fishings in the area. But at least it's uh, trying to prohibit unregulated fishing. But one problem is that it still hasn't entered into force and this, I would say, this hampers also the analysis of what this governance regime could be, as we haven't seen any effects from it. Because for it to enter into force, all of the parties need to ratify the treaty and only eight of the parties have so far. So what does it mean then for the governance complex of the Arctic Ocean? I find it a bit difficult to tease out the main conclusions here, but the authors find that there is a clear commitment to legal and political stability in the emerging international response. And here, I guess, uh, based on your comments earlier, Gabby, you could say a political stability at least between the five states, maybe. Uh, and. The authors also they they considered the, this possibility of designating protected areas under the IMO or the CBD here, um, and also maybe to place the Arctic Ocean governance under the aegis of the BBNJ treaty that is currently being negotiated and. It, while it provides insight to sort of the legal landscape here, what types of or what treaties and agreements are applicable or not, I don't really see how they connect this fisheries agreement with the overall governance regime in the concluding sections. I, I can't see which lessons can be drawn from the agreement. As it hasn't entered into force yet, it's difficult to see how effective it is. And sometimes the paper, it even though, as you said, it might not Go go substantially into law, it still gets stuck in legal technicalities. So you miss this overarching picture, and again, the political aspects of Arctic governance that get they get lost. And they, as we've been discussing this whole episode, the political aspects are really important in able to to be able to understand law and the, the possibilities of law in governance. The the political aspects can't be ignored.
0: No, I I fully agree, and I think this. Um, I was a bit surprised, given the the authors and the title and how they set out, that they don't engage more with with the political perspective and, for example, problematize more the relationship between the Arctic Five and other countries with 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 an interest in Arctic resources and Arctic shipping, for example.
2: I think that for me, this agreement again is is made to save what the interest of these coastal states that in the future are going to have more jurisdiction on the seabed. And if you notice from, the, from the, uh, this agreement, it already exclude all uh, uh, these sedentary species that are yeah. attached to the, to the continental shelf. What does it mean is that they, these states do not want to be, disrupt their future uh, exclusive rights over these resources. And then it, it, I think that this discussion needs to be highlighted because the authors make this um, this claim that in 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 recent environmental law, the precautionary approach they mentioned is combined with an ecosystem-based management. And how this ecosystem-based management is reflected in this in this in this uh, treaty is uncertain, especially when they are already taking. Um, Excluding certain resources.
1: That 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 is a problem for applying an ecosystem approach if you don't want to include the entire ecosystem.
2: And and I think that maybe uh, in, from a political perspective, what they are, like, what these Arctic five states are doing in engaging in actively in having certain measures, certain treaties in the Arctic Sea, maybe a, a certain of convenience from what is happening. Uh, now in the negotiations of of this agreement for the protection of marine biological diversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction because in the current uh, negotiating text uh, a notion that has been very controversial is this notion of adjacency so all of a st- of a states adjacent to areas beyond national jurisdiction many of them claim to have an special interest so mm-hmm. um, maybe a more powerful position to to of what will happen in these areas and i think this this type of of, of attempts to to gain a leader a, a leadership role are attempts to to advance maybe this adjacency proposal that it's already happening in the international arena and that is very contested
1: now this was a really interesting connection to these two articles that i as a well i usually don't uh... Work that much with the law of the sea. I think this was a really interesting connection that I that I didn't see uh, while reading them.
2: So I I think that this was a very again interesting article. Um, these are important I think developments uh, for 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 the for the Arctic. But what, again, what I missed was what is the connection with the governance in this paper? They also call for. Establishing a new organization, what I think is a mistake the, in the Arctic, there is already uh, the Arctic Council that I think this is the organization that needs to be strengthened, have already built a certain capacity to engage in, in Arctic issues.
1: Yes, but I think that it's, uh, I, I I also, I see what you mean that it's it's easy to to call for more legislation or more organizations or to to be able to tackle certain issues but as long as there is legislation in place and there are organizations that could potentially do the same type of work it I, I also see it it seems unnecessary and it seems like it would only lead to more fragmentation than in the governance
2: yeah I think that the are what 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 I would like to to see is what are what is the effects of the Arctic five and what will happen with the larger Arctic cooperation if these five Arctic states continue to pursue their interests in, in uh, their their interest in isolation from other Arctic states? What will be the consequence? And as you mentioned, maybe fragmentation in the, in the area, so eroded cooperation.
0: But I think to me at least it was a very good paper in the sense that it gave um, a nice overview of legal developments concerning the Arctic um, at a level of detail that you, you don't necessarily get in, in many other sources and, and so sort of trying to capture the the number of uh, the number of legal um, treaties that apply and the development of this latest fisheries agreement so I, I think still I still think it's, it's it's a useful read for anyone who isn't really deeply engaged with Arctic uh, law and, and, and management Absolutely.
1: absolutely. For me, it gave a lot of insight. I, I, I mean, it was really informative in that way in how sort of this, this the legal development has has taken place in, in the last years, uh, even though it maybe not problematized the development, I, you get an overview of what has happened. Yes, yes.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, So I think we've reached the end of today's podcast. And uh, maybe an overall conclusion is that we would like to see more sort of in-depth studies combining a a deep understanding of the legal context with a more engagement with the the, um, political struggles that uh, pertain to the Arctic in these days. And... um, well, maybe we haven't seen, or at least these were not examples of truly combining um, the different social sciences and legal perspectives um, that we were, were hoping for. But, but still two uh, very relevant, very interesting, and, and in particular perhaps maybe informative articles that can help you understand particularly the legal aspects of um, Arctic regulation and Arctic governments. Thank you so much, Gabi, for joining us today and making this podcast so interesting.
1: Yes, a really interesting discussions, Gabi. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for
2: this invitation and I hope in the future to hear more uh, podcasts coming from you.
0: <laughs> yes, we hope so as well. <laughs> yes. Okay, and by that, we thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Yeah, goodbye.
1: Goodbye.